the structure of management information. This is the probably most difficult thing to understand. We have two versions, SMI version 1 defined here and SMI version 2 defined here. Except for these main standards, there are some other standards that add more information. For instance, RFC 1212, concise MIP definition, extends this standard and uh, gives better description of certain constructs that are in here. Also, if you look at this one, there are some things that are related, uh, like textual conventions. So, uh, this is in fact the definition of new types, uh, which ones are being defined. So this is closely related to that one. The question is, uh, yeah, what is the SMI being used for? Um, and what's the purpose of it? And this is the answer. Uh, with an SMI, people who want to define a new management information base know how that management information base should look like, what kind of constructs are allowed or not. So SMI is primarily there for MIP designers to guide them. Uh, it defines, for instance, the syntax of MIP variables uh, and because the syntax is well defined, there are lots of tools that can do something with MIPS and without the SMI that would not have been possible. Why do I discuss it here? Well, not that you will write after this course large MIPS. Of course you may do so, but that will not be the exercise I'll give to you. But I think it's important that you will be able to read MIPS and understand MIPS. So if you get an internet standard, a MIPS standard, and you look through it, then yeah, these MIPS definitions look really scaring for a lot of people. They get afraid of looking at it. And um, by introducing this, I hope you will not be afraid, but you'll see the common structure and see that it's basically very simple. Before I will discuss how you how the syntax is of management information, I will want to make clear that there is a difference between how the syntax is of management information in a system, how you can define management information in a system, how that may look like, and how you may transport management information. There are two different things. How you can store it in a system is different from how you transport it. If you look at a system and you want to represent management information in that system, you can do it in two ways. You can use scalars, like the current time, or the number of packets received by the system, or you can use tables, which are in fact two-dimensional arrays of scalars. So there's some kind of structuring here. Huh? These scalars are things like integers, uh, uh, characters, etc. But with these tables you can also define some, some, some structure of these uh, uh, scalars. Uh, note that this structure 
is only limited to the definition of tables. You cannot define something that is in the C programming language called stru structure or in Pascal records. Uh, these kind of things are not possible. Uh, that is already too advanced. But this is how you exchange management information between the manager and the managed system. And if you want to exchange something, you can only exchange scalars, or in fact a list of scalars. What you cannot do have one operation, one get operation, to fetch immediately a complete table. If you want to, to get the table, you should do get operations on the individual elements of the table, which makes it quite complicated. If you look at, for instance, OSI management, you see that OSI can have arbitrary structures, no problem, has powerful operations to get an entire table or get many tables, these kind of things are all possible in OSI, but not in SNMP. Finally, an important characteristic of the SMI is that it is defined in terms of ASN1, abstract syntax notation 1. Uh, that is an, uh, a heritage of the OSI roots of SNMP. This is something that people uh, regret nowadays, and there are proposals to get rid of this, because ASN, the version of ASN1 that uh, is being used by SMI is a version which was standardized by OSI in 1988. That standard has been removed from OSI, it's not a standard anymore, so if there are now uh, problems with understanding the precise meaning of something, there's not a standard anymore which we can use to look it up. Also, it is relatively difficult to build tools uh, for this. So, this is an uh, unfortunate uh, yeah, result of the OSI background. Okay. The next eight or ten slides I'll concentrate on uh, the scalar values. The scalars you can have in a management information base can have several types. They can be of the integer type, can be an octet string, can be an object identifier, which I'll explain later. Uh, and there's some some other things. I'll go to them uh, one by one. But first, I'll want to make this difference. You have uh, simple types in the SMI and you have application-wide types. The simple types are the types that were already defined in the ASN1 standards. And the application-wide types are the new types which are based on these simple types but are defined in the SMI. And if you look at the document you immediately see if something is a simple type or an application-wide type because the convention is that all the types that come from ASN1 are in capitals and all the types that are defined in the SMI start with a capital, but the remainders are lower cases. There are two relatively strange things. We have an integer 32, which is exactly the same as an integer here. And there is something that they call a pseudotype, which is bits. Okay, I'm not going into the details of that. Um, let's go a little bit through this list. 
If you have information, you can store it as an integer with 32 bits, so it cannot be too big. You can also store it as an unsigned integer of 32 bits. You can also have gauges, and a gauge is something that uh, counts from 0 to max integer, but can also count back. So it's just like uh, your car where you look at the speed. Now your, the speed of your car is something between 0 and the maximum speed your car can drive. It will never go faster, um, but it can go lower. So if you want to represent, for instance, the speed of your car, you would use a gauge. If you want to represent the number of kilometers your car has driven until now, you will use a counter. Counters can only count up. And if they come to max integer, then they wrap around and start again with zero. But they cannot count down. So depending upon what you want to represent, you choose between a counter 32 or a gauge 32. You also have a counter 64, so if 32-bits are not enough, but you do not have a gauge 64, which doesn't seem to be very logical. Also, you do not have an integer 64, which is not very logical. Okay, what do we have more? Time ticks, if you want to express, for instance, how long a system is already active, you use a stripe for that uh, scalar uh, time ticks, and the resolution is one hundredth of a second. So you cannot represent something that is uh, in one thousandths or uh, what is in, in microseconds uh, or something like that. Uh, you have uh, a special type for IP addresses and there's also opaque which is a kind of escape mechanism. These are the things that is uh, yeah the, the types defined in SMI version 2. In SMI version 1 certain things were missing like unsigned 32 uh, counter 64, but we also had something like network address, which is not here anymore. This was uh, to switch to OSI or other kind of networks, but we found out that uh, besides the internet protocol, there are no other protocols left anymore, so we do not need such network addresses. Okay. These are the basic types for scalars. Let's look at an example. This is again my manager system, and assume I want to, to manage a very old, nice printer. For instance, this printer can have three variables, the address of the printer, uh, the name of the printer, and the uptime. So now it's up to you, the address of the system, of what type should that be? IP address. And the name? Octet string and the uptime time ticks. Of course, the printer may have many other variables, like the number of papers that have been printed, the number of papers that are still in the in the tray, etc. Probably I should spend some time on terminology here. These variables are 
usually called object instances. And um, later I will explain that there is a difference between an object and an instance. But at this moment I'll not go into that, but just remember that uh, if I <coughs> say in object instance, I mean these variables. Interestingly, we use here the name object, but this has nothing to do, uh, again, with object-oriented technology. These are not objects which have uh, methods, uh, which have uh, behavior, etc., uh, or inheritance and these kind of things. Uh, so we just misuse the term object. The question is, uh, if we have these uh, variables in an agent system, how does the manager know the name of these various variables? So how can it uh, differentiate between the address uh, of, the uh, of the printer, the name of the printer, and the uptime? If it wants to read something, it has to specify the name. Um, well, for that purpose, we have a so-called naming tree. And it works very simple. The, the real things, uh, the real variables we, we manage, are the leaves of a tree. So uh, the variables of the previous example, the address of the printer, the name of the printer, and the uptime of the printer. And yeah, we arrange this in some structure, which may go as deep as we want. Uh, we can introduce many of these nodes here for uh, yeah, just to make naming a little bit easier to understand. Huh? So we can group things together which have a similar meaning under a new node. What is now the name of, for instance, uh, yeah, address? If we do a get operation and we want to read the value of this address, we do a get on 1.1. And if we want to read the name, we do a get on 1.2.1. And if we do a get on the uptime, we do a get on 1.2.2. If we do a get on 1.2, what will the result be? So if we do a get on this, we get an error message. I'll now say a little bit more on the difference between what is an object and what is an object instance. In fact, an object is the definition of something. An instance is the thing that has the real value. And if you look at scalars, the difference is not very useful. But if you look later at tables, we have an object that defines rows in the table, but there can be multiple instances of that object, so there can be multiple rows. And there it is useful to make that distinction. So here it is not really useful, but we are confronted with the fact that we have objects and we have instances. To differentiate between the object and the instance, we just have to put a zero behind the ID of the object. The identifier of the object address is 1.1. But if we want to get the real value of the instance, we have to do a get on 1.1.0. This looks complicated, but in fact, it's quite simple. So if we do a get on 1.1, .1, 1 
what do we get back? Error. Yeah, because the object itself doesn't have the value. The instance has the value. If we do a get on 1.1.0, what do we get back? In this example, on 30.89.16.2. Yeah. If we uh, do a get on 1.2, we already said we get back an error. What will we get back if we do a get on 1.2.0? There's no value associated with this thing. So, there's no instance. Instead of using this dotted notation 1.2.2.0, you can also uh, say 1 info uptime 0. Uh, so, you can use these friendly names, which are defined here uh, as well. You can intermix them. Okay, now we've discussed how you can identify within one system the various variables. But it may be that this system has multiple management information bases defined by several groups, implemented by different people, and still the names of the variables should be worldwide unique. So despite the fact huh, that different people write different MIPS, which are all implemented in the same system, we should still make sure that these different people choose unique names for the things they define. For that purpose, we also have a kind of naming tree that works as follows. If you, uh, in the internet world, want to define a new variable, you should always do it under root, then ISO, which shows us our ISO background, identified organizations, department of defense, internet, management, and then MIP2. So if we want to add something to a system, it should always be uh, root is 1.1.3.6.1.2. Dot one and then something in the mid two. Um, however, if you're a company, you can also store it here, or even a university. The definition of objects. So now we know how to name an object, but we do not yet know how to define it. And that's here. The most important construct you'll see in an uh, in a management information based definition are object types definitions. And an object type is the definition of one object. And they all consist of at least four different clauses. The first clause defines the syntax of the object. And the syntax can be anything we have seen on the previous slide, any type we've seen before. So if I want to make an object uh, which is called name of the printer, I have to say, well, what type will it be? Well, probably if I say it's name of a printer, I will choose the type octet string. But if I have an object which identifies uh, how long the system is already running, I would probably use the syntax time ticks. So I can uh, syntax use any of these types we've seen on the previous slides, but it is also possible to define new types. I'll come to that later. The second thing you have to define is the 
accessibility to that uh, object. And accessibility is uh, something that a lot of people do not really understand. This is not uh, the accessibility that one user has and the other has different accessibility, so it's not access rights, but this is the maximum that is possible for someone. So let's give an example. Um, if I have an object which represents the name of a system, then the definer of that object should say, is that object only readable? So the implementer who builds the, the agents already stores the contents, so it's read-only. Or can it later be written, rewritten? If it is the name of a system, you usually would say, well, the manager can later change the name, so I make it read-write. But if it is, for instance, sysuptime, at the time the system is already running, then it would be read-only, because the variable is being changed by the system, but cannot be manually changed by the manager. And so there's some different possibilities for access. And if you define just something for naming purposes, like info we had on the previous uh, slide, one of the previous slides, which was just there for naming purposes, it is not accessible. So you choose something from this for the access. Then the third clause is the status. You have to define if this object is the current one. So everyone who implements this MIP should implement this object. If, if it is deprecated, which means that it is, should still be implemented, but managers uh, should not use that object uh, because it will be outdated soon, and it can still be obsolete, which means it is there, but it is outdated. Well, nearly everything is good. Finally, you get uh, the description of the object. So that's, in fact, quite simple. So object types are are used to define the real variables, the leaves of the, of the naming tree. This is an example. Uh, address, then object type, and then I have these four clauses. Syntax, IP address, max access, read-write, so people can, managers can read the uh, address, but can also change it. Status is current, and description, the internet address of this system. Finally, you have to give this object a unique identifier. So if my MIP is called new MIP, then I can say this is the first object in my MIP. So new MIP.1. So that's an example. You can also define things that are not leaves. It's very simple. You have a name, object identifier, and then some ID. For instance, info. In one of the previous slides, I had info. It's object identifier, new MIP.2. Finally, this is the main structure. If you define a MIP, you should start with keywords definitions and then begin and and between that you have to define the first object identifier of the MIP. So it could be new MIP and then all the node and all the leaf objects and I've just shown on the slide before and the slide before that. And you just list them all. And there are of course a couple of constraints, but I'll not go into the de details of that.
Uh, now I will uh, talk about uh, tables in the SMI. And uh, yeah, of course, the first question is why do you want tables? Well, I've just given here an example here. Assume how we are this system, number one, which has two lines, one to system number two and one to system number three. Um, but it can reach all the other systems. Then you need a routing table saying that for destination two, I go as next hop. That way for destination three, I can also go directly there. Five, I need to go via two. Seven is also via two. Eight, this example, via three. And this one decides if it goes via eight or via five. Um, but this kind of information is in your system always represented as a table. And the table can get more entries if there are more systems connected to the network or entries can disappear if one system disappears. So that is something dynamically and um, yeah, you want to represent these kind of things in exactly the same way in the SMI. So this is the table in our example that system one has. Now the question arises if a manager wants to read the elements of this table, how should the manager do that? Remember that it is not possible that the manager just does a get on the entire table and gets in the entire table there. The manager should uh, identify the different elements of the table and retrieve them one by one. How does that naming scheme look like? Well, I'll discuss on the next slides, two alternatives. The first alternative is the one that is not being used, but I use it to give you some feeling why the second one is being used. Uh, because the second one looks a little bit complicated, but if you understand the problems of the alternatives, the second one will be clearer. So, Let's extend the examples we had before the coffee break and add to our little MIP such a table. How could that MIP look like? For instance, it could look like as follows. Uh, we still have the, ad the address, the info name, uptime, uh, as we had before. But now we've added a new branch to our MIP. So under 1.3 we have the routing table. The table has uh, two columns, one for the final destination, and the second column is to identify the next node on the route towards that destination. Let's assume we want to retrieve the next hop for destination 8. Well, destination 8 is in 1, 2, 3, 4, is in the fifth row of the table. <coughs> so, what we could do is use a naming scheme to identify uh, the next one, that is this one, uh, which is as follows, 1.3, then we need this column, dot 2, uh, and then 1, 2, 3, 4, the fifth row, dot 5. Uh, if we do that, new MIP, that's this one, route table, next, this one, five, we get this one. You could do that. 
This explains what the difference is between an object and an instance. Now we have here the, say, the, the object, but we have one, two, three, four, five, six instances of that. And to identify which instance we need, we had to put the instance number at the end of the object. Um, and that didn't make sense for these kind of things, so here we just had to add a zero. What is the problem if we use this scheme to identify the different elements in the table? Of course you can go through this table and you read the first one, then, then this one, until you find here destination 8. And then you know the row. And then you can use that number, that row number, to go to the next. But that's not very fast. You have to go through the entire table. And, okay, you can say, after some time, uh, if I've gone once through this table, I know that this is row number 5. So, the next time I don't have to go through the entire table anymore. But, in the meantime, a new system can be added to the network, so a new entry can be added to this table, which probably can be at the end, but there can also be a new, uh, an existing entry, uh, for instance this one, uh, this one, can be removed. And then the row, uh, if this one uh, is removed, then the row of this one is not 5 anymore, but 4. So, every time we have to go through the entire <coughs> table, which is not very convenient. This approach is not being used. Instead of that, we use the values of this column in our naming. And in fact, we, nooms, we name such a column an index column. And so the column destination is used to index the table. And now, if we do new MIP, route table, next, five, then the agent goes automatically through this until it finds in the index column the value 5 and returns to us the uh, result which is 2. The disadvantage is that each number here should be unique. So if there are two, road, uh, two routes towards a certain destination you have to do something else. If I do a get on 1.3.1.5, what do I get? Five. Yes, 5. Right? Because 1.3, then 1, 5. If I do a get on 1.3.2.5, do I get back? 2, exit. 1, 3, 2. Then we look here till there's 5. Okay, 2. 1.3.1.9. Yes. 1.3.2.9. Yeah. 1.3.2.7. Yeah. 1.3.1.1. Good. 1.3.2.1. Also error. Okay. In general, if you want to identify elements of the table, you just use the object identifier of the table then the column number, and then the index value. 
I must already warn you that in the examples I showed before, I have left out some details, which will be added later, but forget about it now. So the examples I gave before are not 100% correct. If we look at the, uh, yeah, the index values, so the first column, these values need not be consecutive. So uh, it could be that uh, certain things were missing. If we do get operations, then that might be a little bit inconvenient because we get, if we do gets on things that where the index value doesn't exist, we get errors back. But we have a special operation to to go through tables, which is called the get next. And there we do not have to precisely specify a thing we are interested in, we just say give me the next element. It is not necessary to have an integer as index. You can also use any of the other types that is allowed. So, for instance, you can use IP addresses here, which looks more like a, a real uh, routing table. So, in this case, you have 1.3.2. .13.89.16.4 and then gives get you gives you this thing back. This looks to many people very confusing because for the object identifiers we use the dotted notation, but also for IP numbers we usually uh, use a dotted notation. What you can also do is uh, you can use instead of IP addresses you can DNS you can use DNS names so you can use uh, www.simpletimes.org and then you get back for instance the IP address so you can have all these possibilities the next thing we will look at is if these numbers are not unique so there are multiple routes towards a certain destination. What do you have to do then? In fact, it is quite simple. If the index value is not unique, well, you have to use more index values. So you add more columns. Take the example of our routing table again and assume that for each destination we have multiple routes and we have two policies to come there. For instance, a policy which says that we go there via the fastest line, which is one, and the other policy, which says that we go via the cheapest line. Well, maybe two different routes. In that case, we can have here two values who are the same, as long as in the other index columns uh, we have something that still makes this row unique. Yeah. So, if you do a 1.3.3, which is the next, then 192, 1, 23, 24, 192, 1, 23, 24, that's, these are these two, and then a 1 here from the policy, which is this one, I get back this one. And if I do a 1.3.3, and again the same IP address, but now a 2, I get. How does this look like? The route table is again something that if we define it in the MIP, yeah, we have to define 
an object for it. So we use the object type macro, which has again a syntax, max access, status, description, uh, plus yeah, the identifier for that one. The route table itself, uh, let's skip syntax, I'll come to that later. Let's first look at max access. It's has is max access not accessible. It is not accessible because you cannot operate directly on the route table. You cannot do a get on the route table or set on the route table. You can only do that on the individual elements of the route table. So that's why the route table itself is not accessible. The status is current, well everything is always current. Then the description, this entity's routing table. Yeah. But here the syntax is something that is new. It says that it is a sequence of route entry. This is just saying that uh, this type can be there many times, so sequence of is exactly the same as in a programming language, an array of this type. I first add one additional thing, which is there for syntactical reasons. This is one of the consequences of using ASN1. We also have to define an object here for a row. So root entry, which is one row of the table. And we say that syntax is route entry. The max access, access not accessible, so you cannot do a get on an entire row of the column or of a table. Status current descriptions, the route to a particular destination. This, this is one row in the routing table. And here we define the index in the table. And the index is destination and policy. That's what we had on the previous. So this is something that is new and that is important. Let's first look at how this, this new type looks like. Here I have the definition of the new type, route entry. And it's in fact a sequence of three basic types. A destination, which is of type IP address. A policy, which is an integer. And a next, which is also an IP address. Now still we have to define the, the various elements. Well, we had three kind of elements. We have destinations, that was the first column. Policy, used for the second column, and next. And this is, in fact, quite simple. Uh, the destination is something of syntax IP address, status current, description, still. If you go through this, this is obvious, I would say. If you want to define new types, how do you do that? Well, usually we call new types, we call them textual conventions. And what you can do if you define new types is to refine the semantics of existing types. I have uh, an example here to define a new type, which I call run state. You say that this is a textual convention, which in fact means new type. New type. Status, current, description, some kind of description, and then the syntax. That's now the interesting part. Syntax here is a refinement of an existing syntax. So I'll take the basic integer syntax, and what I'm now saying is that this type run state can in fact have four different values. The integer can be one, which means that it is running. The integer may take the value two, which means runnable. The integer may have value 3, which means waiting, and the integer may take the value 4, which means uh, that, it is, uh, that it exits. So now I have a new type, which can basically have four different values. 
This is yeah quite nice because first it makes MIPS easier to understand, but also tools can now generate some stuff that checks, for instance, if someone tries to to set this integer to five, and that gives an error. Well, related to the SMI definition, there's a separate document called Textual Conventions, and they have defined lots of new types, all based on the existing types. So we have physical addresses, we have MAC addresses, we have truth values. I remember that it was not the simple type Boolean. So if you want to represent something with a Boolean value, you had to use an integer with a value 0 and 1. Well, we've made a new type, textual convention for that, called truth value. With some other things, I will not go into the details. Autonomous types, instance pointers, variable pointers, row pointers, row status. I'll show that on the next slides. Timestamps, time intervals, date and type, storage type. So if you store it on volatile or non-volatile memory or whatever, transport domain, transport addresses. These are the textual conventions that have been defined. I'll take a look at one of them, row status which looks really complicated. If you read the text, it's about 15 pages, um, but in fact, it's not too difficult. But first, what is this used for? Well, if you define a table, and the table can have multiple columns, and if the manager wants to, to change something in the table or wants to add a new row to that table, then it can be that the manager cannot do that in one operation. So the manager may probably need a lot of uh, yeah, operations to create the new row in the table. As long as the manager is creating the new row, other managers, or even the system itself, should not do anything with the yet incomplete row. How do you indicate if the row is complete or not? Well, that was a question that people had with the SMI version 1, and finally in SMI version 2 we've defined something uh, to solve that problem. In fact, the problem is solved as follows. Every table gets a separate column at the end, which is called the row status column. And the value of that column can have some well-defined meanings. It can say that the row is active, which means that other managers can read it. But the row can also be not active, which means that others cannot do anything with it, but the manager can change things. And the manager can also put the row, the row status to uh, yeah, destroy, which means that the agent can throw it away. Let's first discuss the example where someone a manager wants to add a new row to the table. Then uh, this row status column should be put to a certain value and uh, depending on how the manager is creating that table, it can do that in two ways. The first possibility is that the manager uses one operation to create the row. In that case, the, the value of the row status uh, entry is create and go. But it is also possible that you cannot create the row with just one operation. In that case, you 
first go to something that is create and await. In the meantime, you fill all the other, all the other fields of, of the row. And once you're ready, you do this one, you go to uh, active. Assume that the table row is active, but the manager wants to remove that table row. Well, it's quite simple. The manager just has to do a set operation on the row status. And the row status should be put into the, uh, this point. This is notifications. This is something that was added to SMI version 2, which was not in SMI version 1. Remember that in SNMP version 1, agents have very limited capabilities to inform their manager about their status. The agent could send a trap to his manager. This is really limited. So, with SNMP version 2, with SMI version 2, uh, it is now possible to write in your MIP definition new conditions that, if these conditions happen, the manager will be notified of that. And these conditions are called notification types. In this example, I have a notification in my MIP, which is, has the name link up, and it says that uh, if this entity detects that in a certain table, which I'll explain next time, a certain value of the operational status has changed to up, the manager will be informed of that. So, yeah, it's now possible to add things to a, a MIP that cannot be read by the manager, which cannot be written by the manager, but which will cause some trap to be sent to the manager if a certain condition occurs. And these kind of things are called notifications. <laughs>